Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, December 14th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer who joins me today from PW's editorial offices in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So I should have said welcome back for the last time in 2018, Andrew, because indeed this is our last conversation for the year. We will return next on Friday, January 4th, 2019. In the meanwhile, though, PW has two issues left to publish for the year. And on December 24th, the magazine will unveil its publishing person of the year. And I know you can't disclose the selection now, so we will get to it in January. But I did notice there was an article in New York Magazine about the effect of Trump on the publishing business, and it began with an anecdote about a tense meeting right there at PW in which Trump's name was floated. Is there a clue in there for the rest of us? <laughs> Absolutely right. Yes, uh, there probably is a clue in there somewhat, but can't really say much more. What I can tell you is that it will be no surprise to listeners to know that Trump did indeed dominate the news in the publishing world in 2018. I think if you look back over our podcast for this year, you would say that that's true. And it's a given that Trump would therefore be part, I think, of our person of the year package. Um, and the idea did come up to just sort of name Trump the publishing person of the year and tried to explain why we chose that course. But the overwhelming feeling was that there was just no way that we could put the man on the cover of our magazine without it becoming, well, a major distraction. But indeed, let us count the ways that Donald Trump has impacted our business. First and foremost, you know, we have the sale of Trump books. Uh, we had major bestsellers like Michael Wolf and James Comey and Bob Woodward. Um, of course, there were also some big sellers as defenders of Trump as well. But at the same time, you know, Trump's trade policies have led to supply chain issues for the business. There's been the constant attacks on the free press, which have led to some rather heroic responses, I must say. Uh, we had the loss of net neutrality. And frankly, I think it's fair to say that the rise of Trump going back to the early days of his campaign over three years ago now just sucked so much time and attention out of people's lives that one really has to consider if books can ever break through, it will ever be able to break through this 24-7 news cycle. So, you know, no, Trump is not our person of the year, but no question that Trump was probably the biggest story in publishing in 2018. And that's as much as I can say about what our person of the year issue will look like. <laughs> All right. So we'll have to wait for that December 24th in the upcoming issue on Monday, December 17th, you have a roundup of 2018's big stories of the year from the perspective of the library community. Tell us about that. Yes. Now, this I can talk about. In Monday's issue, we will run down the top 10 library stories of the year, as we do every year. And, you know, I say it often, and I'll just say it again. I think the library community is really the best measure of what's happening in the book business. Uh, and, and all these issues that are simmering in publishing, I think, really tend to get their best looks uh, in coverage of libraries, whether it's, you know, what titles are hot or the state of literacy or politics or ebooks and digital content, you know, what's happening in the culture at large also. So I think that's all certainly reflected in this year's top 10 library stories, as they are every year, uh, which I have to say also garnered record-breaking levels of engagement on our site. The most interacted with stories on our site this year, by and large, came from the library community. And in keeping with today's theme, your top library story for 2018 is Trump-related, as it turns out. At yet another year of the Trump administration, and it came with another set of challenges on many fronts. But, you know, what really animated PW readers is that Trump in February of 2018, for the second year in a row, called to permanently eliminate 
all federal library and arts funding. In uh, the Trump administration's fiscal year 2019 budget proposal, uh, the Trump administration argued that funding libraries is simply not a core federal responsibility, and the administration proposed permanently eliminating the Institute of Museum and Library Services, as well as the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities. And at the time, ALA President Jim Neal blasted the proposal as out of touch with the needs of real Americans and vowed that library supporters would make their voices heard. And I have to say that that story got something like 56,000 likes and shares on Facebook from PW. It really stuck at the top 10 of our stories for a good part of the year. But I can say also that so far that this Trump story has a happy ending as lawmakers have once again defied Trump and recommended reauthorizing and in a couple of cases actually increasing funding levels for many programs, including a $2 million bump in the budget for the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Uh, and in a separate minibus bill that actually passed in September, the Library of Congress is set to receive $26 million in additional funding for its budget. So, you know, ALA is feeling good about this. ALA, of course, being the American Library Association, but they're urging library supporters to stay engaged with their local lawmakers because as of our writing this week, the final budget has not yet been passed. And our listeners may have seen a rather contentious episode in the Oval Office between the Democratic leaders and Trump which suggests that we may even be facing a government shutdown before this budget finally gets resolved. So anything can happen, but right now it's looking good. Are librarians uh, optimistic about their prospects to secure that necessary funding? I think they are in the short term, for sure. And, you know, I would point out that, you know, library funding is just a drop in a very large federal bucket when it comes to the budget. And, you know, one of the things that helps libraries, I think, too, is that money spent on library programs is really some of the best, most effective money spent by the government. It really directly helps people in their communities and local lawmakers, Congress and the like, really see this on in their communities. They see how this money goes to work. But for the long term, I think librarians are actually a little more wary. And I think that's because... In the wake of Trump's corporate tax cut, we're looking at deficits in 2019 and beyond that are poised to exceed a trillion dollars. And that owes to a combination of revenue shortfalls from less tax revenue and, of course, a boost in military spending, a significant boost in military spending. And at some point, the fear is that those deficits are going to be used to justify really deep cuts across the board and that libraries may not be able to escape that. Uh, of course, ALA officials also fully expect the Trump administration is going to continue to seek the elimination of library funding and its future budget proposals. So vigilance and year-round advocacy, those are the watchwords, uh, and that's the plan for library supporters in 2019 and beyond. When Copyright Clearance and Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese explains why the ALA conference in June meant so much throughout the rest of the year. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwinsider or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes.
I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, December 14th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly is with me to review the week's news. And we are running down the top library stories of 2018, Andrew. Several of this year's stories have roots in the ALA Annual Conference in New Orleans last June. There are stories here that resonated with some of the thorny issues in our culture at large. Tell us about those. Yeah, so this year's ALA Conference absolutely generated a lot of media coverage, and a lot of it was kind of touchy stuff. You know, for example, uh, the one story that's in our top 10 this year is that a division of the American Library Association announced at this year's annual conference that they would remove the name of pioneering kids book author Laura Ingalls Wilder from one of the ALA's Children's Book Awards. And that decision came after a task force earlier this year set out to consider what really has become a long-running scholarly discussion around the anti-Native and anti-Black sentiments in Wilder's work. And predictably, that change touched off a chorus of critics who portrayed the ALA move as a sign of political correctness run amok. In fact, even William Shatner, yes, Captain Kirk himself, the Priceline guy, got involved into a Twitter beef with librarians over the change. Now, the argument is that Wilder's book simply reflected the time she lived in. And of course, that's true. But it's not really the point when we're talking about the book award being named after her. And I think ALA actually made the right call here. And for those who bothered to read the task force report, I think that's reinforced. You know, what ALA decided was that to keep the name of Laura Ingalls Wilder on this book award was to effectively tether it to this discussion about Wilder's complex legacy. And it became sort of this, you know, every year, this teachable moment where we would discuss history and racism and stereotypes with children. And that's an important discussion. ALA officials are the first to note that, but it also overshadows the award's intent, which is not to have that discussion every year, but to honor great and lasting contributions to children's literature. So going forward, the award is now going to be called the Children's Literature Legacy Award. And in a statement, ALA President Jim Neal tried to put that change in context. No one's demanding that anyone stop reading Wilder's books, he said. No one wants anyone to stop talking about them or stop making them available to children. But to keep the award named after Wilder was to make that award about something that it was just never designed to be. Also at ALA this year, a controversy surfaced over whether hate groups have a right to use library meeting rooms. Yeah, that was another headline that came out of this year's annual conference. It got a lot of national media attention. Uh, what happened was the ALA Council faced a backlash for adopting new policy language that seemed to specifically protect the rights of hate groups to use the public library meeting rooms. So, you know, basically the language was, was new policy language added to the Library Bill of Rights, and it stated that if a library is going to allow charities and nonprofits, sports groups, etc., to discuss their activities in the library meeting rooms, then the library can't exclude religious or civic or partisan political or even hate groups from discussing their activities in the very same facilities. In a statement, Jamie LaRue, who's the director of the ALA's Offices of Intellectual Freedom, explained that the change wasn't about establishing any kind of new right for you know hate speech to be conducted in libraries. It simply reflected the legal climate the libraries face. You know, when, if you're going to provide public meeting spaces to people, that's protected by the First Amendment, LaRue noted. A publicly funded library is not obligated to provide that service, but if they do, they can't decide who gets to use the meeting rooms based on the viewpoints of the speakers or the people who are going to to be, you know, using that room. But ALA members weren't having it. And they immediately bucked back on this policy. And in a Twitter thread, uh, Baltimore County Public Librarian Tyler Vershawn, I think, really neatly captured the opposition. Uh, we're way past the point of there being room to discuss things in the abstract, like 
gosh, can the Klan use our meeting space? Uh, instead, Vashon urged librarians not to allow what he called the toxic worship of neutrality and inertia to enable fascism in the community. And just weeks later, on August 16th, ALA officials announced that they were rescinding the change to that policy by a 140 to 4 margin. So, so much for inertia. Librarians had a brush with the Me Too movement in 2018, too, Andrew, uh, and that was through its adult book award, the Carnegie Medals. How did that turn out? Yes. Yeah, so and since launching in 2012, we've talked about the Carnegie Medals on this show quite a bit. They've really become uh, a very coveted, highly respected literary award. But this year it came with kind of a twist because Sherman Alexie was named the winner of the 2018 medal for his memoir, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. Now, Alexie was announced as the winner of the nonfiction medal February 11th at the 2018 ALA Midwinter Meeting, which was in Denver. But just weeks earlier, troubling accusations against Alexie began to surfaced in some anonymous comments posted to an article on the School Library Journal website. Now, ALA officials were quick to know that none of these allegations were known when the committee actually made its decision to give the award to Alexi. And within days after the allegations against Alexi went public, Alexi issued a vague apology. And then in early March, via his literary agent, Alexi declined to accept the Carnegie Medal. Now, that decision by Alexi certainly took some pressure off ALA officials who no longer had to worry about whether or not they should invite the author to the awards reception, which was an ALA annual in New Orleans. And in a brief statement, ALA said it was going to A, accept the decision by Alexi to decline the honor, and B, that it was simply not going to award a nonfiction medal in 2018. But here's the thing. I think ALA jumped a little too eagerly at the chance to wash his hands of Sherman Alexi. And as of this writing, you can go to the Carnegie Medals website, and it does indeed show no nonfiction winner for 2018. But the fact remains, Sherman Alexi won. There's a press release in the ALA archive that announces him as the winner, and that press release remains online. ALA never officially rescinded its selection, and there isn't even a note on the Carnegie Medals website to say why there's no 2018 winner. And I think that seems really unfair to all the great nonfiction writers who were shortlisted for the award, but also willfully blind to this sort of powerful cultural moment we're living through. You know, as our listeners can sense, by you know, listening to this podcast and certainly by reading the top 10, ALA is no stranger to controversy or is it a stranger to making tough decisions. But in this case, while I can understand the impulse to duck a punch, I think ALA may also be ducking an important conversation for the Me Too era. And that's just how should we handle the works of these great writers and artists who stand accused of this terrible behavior? Now, is that a fraught conversation to have? Absolutely. But really, who better to have that conversation than the library community? And for the rest of the year's top stories, our readers will have to check out the list for themselves in PW and online. Yeah, we can talk about this for the rest of the day. Indeed, you know, the, the library ebook market is a big part of that. I mean, it seems to be growing much more contentious after Tor's new embargo was put in place, something we've talked about on this show. Uh, there was that editorial in Forbes, our readers may remember, that suggested that Amazon should replace libraries. And that led to this glorious defense of libraries on editorial pages and on social media this summer. And of course, there's Michelle Obama, who keynoted the ALA annual conference this year. But 
I agree. I, I would at this point urge our listeners to pick up Monday's issue uh, and read the top 10 for yourself. You know, I think it's not only a very neat look at the year in libraries, but also the year in publishing. And really, I think it speaks to a lot of issues that are pretty contentious and pretty in the forefront of our national conversation these days, too. Well, you know, the year in review is a format uh, many publications enjoy going through in December. And Andrew, we appreciate your look back at the library stories. I've been looking back at Beyond the Books coverage of publishing throughout 2018. And what do you suppose I found in January? The headline, Fire and Fury Ignites the Publishing World. So indeed, it has been a really kind of a one-note story throughout the year about the Trump administration and its uh, impact on publishing and the world at large. So uh, we will expect perhaps more of that in 2019. Who knows? But we do know you will be with us again coming up on Friday, January 4th, uh, 2019. We look forward to having you join us in the meantime, Andrew, thanks for being with us today and throughout the year. Happy holidays and talk with you again in 2019. My pleasure, as always, and happy holidays to you and to our listeners as well. Coming up on Beyond the Book, when Steve Jobs introduced the iPad in 2010, the pundits and the journalists were ready to declare the death of print. They saw the digital reading device from Apple and its Amazon-bred competitor, the Kindle, as twin stakes to the heart of paper and ink. Over the years, we've watched the rise of ebooks, the attendant pressure on print, and even the surprising plot twist that many readers, including young ones, continue to prefer physical books over their virtual counterparts. Industry analyst Rudiger Vishenbart says this is hardly the whole story, and in fact, it is only phase one. About to dawn as the decade closes is the second act in the ebook play, which Vishenbart calls digital reading. Uh, and it's so funny to see that even Steve Jobs, the big innovator, when he innovated the iPad, didn't anticipate what he would do next with the iPod and with the uh, iPhone. Because it was the iPhone which kicked off all that smartphone revolution where we are in. And one of the consequences for books is suddenly we realize that not even the process reading is a holy grail suddenly people take in the stories uh, by listening to the stories. And they don't just listen to them from uh, the, uh, the iPhone or the smartphone. Now they have Alexa speakers and, and other smart speakers in their living room reading books for them. I don't expect that reading is going away. Not at all. But I see that there are different things that can coincide. And that's um, what I want to uh, make the the key point of reference of my observations. Ebooks Act Two next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. Mm-hmm.